you open your Bible to Philippians, we're going to start in chapter 1, we're going to give us kind of an overview of the end today, but uh, before we do that, I wanted to give you a quick update, uh, you should have gotten a prayer request earlier this week uh, for Vivian Fury, and uh, she did get transferred to York Hospital and had two stints put into her heart on Friday, and uh, tomorrow they're going to take her back down to surgery and, uh, and do the rest of what needs to be uh, dealt with there in her heart. So please keep her and, uh, and Jeff in your prayers as, uh, as they walk that journey, <clears throat> that God's hand will be upon them. Let's pray uh, before we get into God's Word. Father, we want to come before you today knowing that because of Christ, And our relationship with you through him, we have a hearing in the very presence of Almighty God. For that we give you thanks. We don't come before a God who who is looking for us to mess up so that he he can get us. We don't come before a God who who is demanding of us a certain level of obedience before He will give us His favor. We come before a God who is gracious and compassionate, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. We come before a God who who took the initiative to love us before we even understood we had a need to be loved you, you sent your son to save us before we need a need, a, a knew we had a need to be saved. And so, God, we give you thanks today for your incredible love, faithfulness to us, in spite of our unfaithfulness to you. Today we ask that you would give us clarity as we look at your word. Help us understand it. And apply it to our lives. We also want to pray for Vivi. As she is recovering from Friday's surgery. And will be going back in tomorrow. We ask that you would be give favor to her. To the, the doctors. That, that they would have the skill as they go in. That, that there would be no, no complications and, and no mistakes. But Lord that everything will go smoothly as it ought to. And we pray for her recovery. Ask that you would be pleased to be at work within her. We pray for Jeff as he's concerned about his wife. And uh, Lord, that's natural for us to feel these, these feelings. And so we pray that you will overwhelm him as well as Vivian with your peace as they trust you in this matter. And we'll thank you for how you're going to work for the glory of your name good of your people in the midst. Teach us from your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it was June, I'm sorry, in September of 2021, we began a journey through the book of Philippians. Today we bring that journey to conclusion. Some of you are saying, finally. No. Uh, so we are, we are coming to, to the end of this time in the book of Philippians. It has been a rich time for me in processing that and preparing and, and sharing 
the things that uh, we find in this book. Uh, scholars are mostly in agreement that the book of Philippians is a book about joy. In fact, in these four chapters, we have the word joy or rejoice 13 different times. Paul mentions this, talks about this. It is a, it is a book that's filled with this, this joy, but this joy is not a, uh, a surfacey kind of happiness, uh, a happy-go-lucky kind of thing, a don't-worry-be-happy mentality. This is a deep and abiding joy that comes through a deep relationship with God. And Paul is writing this letter while in prison. And so he's writing about a joy that's not just, hey, everything's going well, so let's be happy. No, he's writing about this joy that is deep and resonates in our soul when we understand that our circumstances are not all there is. There is a plan and a purpose being worked out by a sovereign God above the fray of the circumstances we are in at the moment. And that joy is that I know I'm in the hands of a sovereign God. And so as I was reading and praying to, to begin this series, this concept of living with eternity in view kept coming to my mind. And so I chose that for our sermon series title, Living with Eternity in View. And I hope that that concept has come through as we've been working through this. But wanted to take today to just reiterate this concept and follow the flow of that through the book of Philippians and point out a few key passages that help us to understand what it looks like to live out this idea of living with eternity in view. And so we start in chapter 1. And I'll read verses 3 down through verse 6. This is Paul's kind of introduction in his writing. He's already introduced himself, who he's writing to, and now he's, uh, and he greets them with that grace and peace. And then verse 3, he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always praying, uh, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. One of the first ways that we can live with eternity in view is that our confidence is in the Lord. Paul says, I'm confident of this very thing. That the work God began in you, He will bring it to completion. That's what that word perfect means. To bring to its end. To bring to completion. What is it that God is going to bring to completion? The work that was begun in them. You see in verse 5, they participated with Paul in the gospel. How did they do that? Well, we've been talking over the past few weeks about their financial participation. They were giving to Paul's needs so he could remain on the field continuing to preach the gospel. But they also participated in their own sharing of the truth. In their own context, there in Philippi. Talking to people about the Lord. Living it out. And so we see that this confidence 
is that God will bring salvation to completion. The work that He began, He'll bring it to completion. Paul is confident of that fact, that God began a work, and God, if God begins a work, God will bring that work to completion. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who hears the gospel will get saved. That's not what confidence is. But our confidence is that everyone who puts their faith in Christ will be saved in the end. He will keep them to the very end. God began a good work, and He'll bring it to completion. John MacArthur writes this about, about this concept. He says, it's easy for believers to become discouraged when they focus upon their problems and imperfections. And he also says, and of those of other believers. Sometimes we can get discouraged when we look around and we think, why aren't they growing up like they should be? Why aren't they this or that? Why are they still struggling with that? Or maybe we look at our own life and say, why can't I overcome this problem, this issue, this struggle? And we get discouraged. And he goes on to say, those sins should not be ignored or minimized, but neither should they be allowed to overshadow the marvelous reality of the future perfection of the church and of every individual believer. As God's Word guarantees so frequently and clearly, remembering that glorious truth removes the debilitating pressure of doubt and fosters triumphant joy, gratitude, and anticipation. In so doing, it also frees God's people to live more abundantly and fruitfully. Instead of focusing upon where we fall short, we focus upon where God has completed the work. We look to Him and we put our confidence in the fact that God began a work in me. And He brought me to a place where I put my faith in Christ. And God is still at work in me and bringing it to completion. And so what a, what a glorious thought. And it, it helps us to live with that abundant joy and with a sense of confidence that God will bring salvation to completion. Secondly, we move to later in chapter 1, and we see that God will work in your life. First of all, we see where Paul is saying, because he's in prison, and he says, I know, verse 19, this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ shall even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And so he says, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And if I am to live on in this flesh, this mean, will mean fruitful labor for me, and, and I do not know which to choose. He recognizes that God is at work in him. And God is going to bring about fruitful labor in his life. If God were to choose to keep him alive a little longer, he knows that that's going to mean fruitful labor. But if God were to choose to take him now, he knows that that means he's in the presence of God. And so he says, if it was up to me, I don't know which one I would choose. <laughs> For to live is Christ. To die is gain. He is confident 
And so he faces the reality of even his own mortality with a level of confidence because he knows that God is at work in him. And then you come to chapter 2, and we see that in verse 12 and 13, he says, uh, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is working his plan and his purpose in your life. He is. Whether you see it in the moment or not, whether you feel it in the moment or not, whether the circumstances you are presently in look gloom and doom, God is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. We can be confident of that based on the truth of God's Word, not based on our feelings, not based on the circumstances, based on the Word of God. See, that's what it means to live with eternity in view. I don't live with this moment in view. I live with eternity in view. I understand God is at work above the fray. He's working in my life. Thirdly, we see as we've talked last week, God will supply all your needs. Chapter 4, verse 19. And my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. God takes care of His children who trust Him and obey His Word. And again, we talked about all that's involved with that promise. And it's for believers. And it's for believers who are faithfully uh, supporting the work of ministry, who are trusting the Lord in their financial areas, as well as all of life, and allowing God to work. To use Warren Wearsby's terminology, He meets our needs and not our greeds. <laughs> right? He meets the needs that we have. When we are willing to trust Him with it. I can guarantee you that if you go to the rescue mission in Hagerstown or Waynesboro or you meet some homeless person somewhere, if you were to ask them, did you get in this financial problem because you gave too much money to the Lord? I can guarantee you there won't be one person who will ever say, yeah, I gave too much to the Lord, therefore I'm homeless, therefore I don't have my needs met. It will never happen. Because God will supply His people what our needs are. So we can have confidence in the Lord because we have an eternal perspective, not just a temporal perspective. If we keep our eyes on our situation here, we will never believe that we have enough money to give some of it away. But when we know God is our provider, when we trust Him, we understand He's at work, we know He will supply all of our needs and we will have our confidence in the Lord. Second truth, our conduct is for the Lord. Go back to chapter 1, verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
So whether I come and see you or remain absent, Paul writes, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. And it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only that we believe in him, but also that we suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Our conduct is for the Lord. It's not for other people. It's not for uh, to get ahead in life. It's for the Lord. And so we live as if the gospel matters because it does. He says, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Live your life knowing that the gospel matters. And that how you live it out before other people matters. And what they see in you matters. See, when we believe that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe, then we'll stand firm in it no matter what. But when we believe that what other people think of us is power, then we will compromise when we're in a situation where we're not sure if people are on the same page with us. It's very easy to stand firm in the faith in a local church where you're surrounded with people who believe the same thing you do for the most part. But you get out into the world, and people don't think the same way. People don't have the same belief system. And then we start to wonder, should I, should I be confident in this? Should I be bold in this? Should I conduct myself as if the gospel really matters, or should I tone it down? <laughs> now, we don't want to be obnoxious. That We're never called to be obnoxious. We're never called to jam it down anyone's throat. But we're called to live out the grace of God in the gospel. Live as if it matters, because it does matter. It matters for eternity. And so our conduct is for the Lord. Secondly, we live as if people are important, because they are. Chapter 2, starting with verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interests of others. There's that humility you were asking for, Mary. Uh, <laughs> we live as if people are important. As if other people around us <laughs> and their needs are more important than ours. That's not natural. It doesn't come easy to us. We live in our flesh, in our, our natural state, as if we're the most important person and everybody else around us is there to kind of build up my importance. That's not the way of the gospel. That's not the way of Christ. And then he gives that example of Christ who, who did not even regard equality with God a thing to, to be held on to, but emptied himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on a cross for you and for me. You see, if he 
If he took the perspective that you were not important, he would have never come. He came because you are important to him. And he says, I want you to live as if people around you are important, because they are. Treat them like they're important. And then he gives us that, what I think is a key <clears throat> in ministry, and that's verse 17 of chapter 2. An essential key in living this out. Using the imagery of the Old Testament, he says, that even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. As I said when we preach through this, a drink offering is a secondary offering. You've got five major offerings. You've got the drink offering was always in conjunction with a primary offering to enhance the offering up to God. And so a drink offering understood that he was or she was lesser important than the major offerings. And so came alongside of and built them up. That's, and Paul says, this is what I see my life being. The great apostle Paul, right? He did not live as if everyone around him existed to build him up and build up his ministry and make him more successful and more uh, great for God. No, he lived his life as if he existed to build other people up so that what they did for God was most important. That's the key to this whole idea of people are important and putting people ahead. See, there are leaders out there who either do one of two things. They either use people that are under their leadership to build themselves up or they use their own authority and responsibility to build them, the, the others around them up. We want to be that second one. We want to be the person who uses every resource God has entrusted to us, every gifting, every, every, every resource, to bless and build other people up. We willingly take the position of a secondary offering to enhance the primary offerings others live their lives with. We pour ourselves out to build others up. So the question is, how are you doing that? How are you living as if other people are important? How are you living as if the gospel really matters? See, our conduct is not for ourselves. It's for the Lord. This is what it means to live with an eternal perspective, with eternity in view. Thirdly, our commitment is to the Lord. We come to chapter 3. Paul's talking about those who put their confidence in the flesh. And he says, listen, if, I, if that was the case, I have, I have more confidence in the flesh than what they do when you start talking about, you know, all these things about myself in, in Israel and, you know, and I was a Pharisee and I was... All these things that he was in his flesh that made him, build him up more than what these others were doing. And he says, listen, all of that I consider to be a pile of dung in comparison to knowing Christ. Our commitment is to the Lord. Not to these other things. Not to what, again, makes us look better in people's eyes, but to the Lord. And so we want to develop a spiritual hunger for Christ. 
that I may know him, verse 10 of chapter 3. And the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Again, when we looked at that passage in more depth, we said that we need to have a desire to know Jesus more deeply and a desire to surrender to Jesus more fully. That I may know Him. I want to know this power that He brings, that a deep and abiding relationship with Christ is in my life. But that also involves the fellowship of suffering. Right? Being conformed to His death. And I might die to me that Christ might live in and through me. I want to develop that kind of a hunger for Christ. Paul desired that. And counted everything else rubbish. Counted everything else as loss in comparison to knowing Christ. And then he goes on in verses 12 through 14 to talk about pursuing spiritual maturity in Christ. Not that I've already obtained it. Right? If anybody who lived this life would have attained to spiritual maturity in its completion, it would have been someone like the Apostle Paul. But he says, I understand, I have not attained it yet. Or have already become perfect or mature. But I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on. He's pursuing spiritual maturity. He's never satisfied with where he's at. He hadn't arrived yet. Because as we said back when we looked at this, spiritual maturity is not a destination we arrive at one day. Spiritual maturity is a process we engage in every day. Sometimes we can look at people and say, man, I wish I was spiritually mature like so-and-so. It didn't happen by accident. They didn't just wake up one day and boom, they were now spiritually mature when the day before they were not. It's a process. And we have a part to play. We engage in this process every day. We get up. We look to the Lord. We invite the Lord to be at work in our lives. We surrender again. We die to self. Take up our cross daily and follow Him. We go to His Word to find out who is this God? Who has He revealed Himself to be? Is there anything in this passage that I'm reading this morning that instructs me on how I'm going to live my life today? Is there anything in this passage that teaches me who I am in Christ? Is there anything in this passage that reminds me of who my God is? Is there anything I can praise Him for? Anything I can obey? Anything I can do to live this out today? Is there any instructions my King has for me as I walk with Him this day? We engage in that every day. This is how we show up and participate in our own spiritual maturity. We pursue it. <clears throat> Without a spiritual, a, a spiritual hunger for Christ, you won't. And even when you have it, it's hard. I'll be honest with you. There are many days and I don't get up and say, man, I, I can't wait to spend time in God's Word this morning. 
But I can tell you this, when I spend time in God's Word, now I feel, I'm so glad I spent time with God. It's not about feeling. It's about commitment. We go to God and His Word and prayer each day because we know, I need this. I'm going to grow up and do what God has called me to do. And so we continue to pursue out of commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then lastly, our contentment is through the Lord. Our contentment is through the Lord. We looked at uh, this promise in verse 7 of chapter 4 about the peace of God. We spent several weeks kind of unpacking those different commands that surround that promise. And I said that I believe this is a conditional promise, that it's conditioned on God will bring us peace, but it's conditioned on our obedience to these commands to rejoice in the Lord always. And he says it again, rejoice. Let your forbearing spirit be known. That, that gracious, sweet reasonableness that is inside when you know Christ. Let it be known to other people. Let it come out of your life. That grace. He says, be anxious for nothing. But by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Right? This is a command of not be anxious. Not let... Fear, grip, and overpower you, but instead lay your concerns before the king. Because he hears us, and he cares, and he will do something about it. And then verses 8 and 9 talk about putting our minds on the right things, right? Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, these things, set your mind on these things. Instead of all the things that are untrue and unholy and, and, un, and not honorable and all these things that our minds want to conjure up and, and all that. No, think about these things. Let our minds dwell there. Sometimes those things come in, but we, we want to bring those thoughts captive in the obedience of Christ and we want to keep our focus where it needs to be. And then the things you've learned, verse 9, and received and heard and seen in me, Paul says, practice these things. Put it into a habit in your life. So we do the right things. When we are practicing these commands, God's peace, which is beyond our ability to comprehend, will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus from worry, from anxiety, from all those things. So we can experience the peace of God. Contentment is through Him. We can experience the peace of God. And secondly, we can learn the secret of contentment, which again, we've been talking about more recently, verses 10 through 13. Paul un understands <clears throat> that his contentment is not based upon circumstances. Circumstances change. One day things are going well, the next day they're not going so well. <laughs> One season things are going fine in our life, and we're you know, everything seems to be working out, and then there's other seasons in our life where nothing seems to be working out at all. When it seems like there's disappointment around every turn. But our contentment is not based on our circumstances. And it's not based, as we talked about, on our financial uh, situation. Because Paul says, I've learned how to get along with plenty, and I've learned how to get along in need. I, 
I don't, it doesn't matter in the sense of why, where my contentment lies. Why? Because his tent, contentment is in the Lord. It says, verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. It is through a relationship with Christ. <clears throat> That's the secret of contentment. And once we grasp that, then we can walk through the journey God has laid out for us. And when God allows things to be hard, we are looking to Him for strength to deal with them. When things are going well and things seem to be easier, we don't lose sight of the fact that God is blessed in this way and God is still at work and I need to keep trusting Him and I need to walk in that and not put all my confidence in what I have. Keep trusting Him. So we're living with eternity in view. Our confidence is in the Lord. Our conduct is for the Lord. Our commitment is to the Lord. And our contentment is through the Lord. Let me put it this way. Living with eternity in view means that I live today knowing that tomorrow is coming. And not just literal tomorrow. The tomorrow. And so I'm going to live today knowing there's a future waiting for me. I understand that God has a sovereign purpose in the things that I go through. I understand, right, He's working above the fray. I realize that what I do in the here and now has ramifications for the there and then. So I'm going to consider what I do in the here and now. How I conduct myself in the presence of other people how I live out the gospel, how I treat other people, how I build other people up. And I trust that God knows what He's doing even when I don't have a clue. Not only do I not have a clue what I'm doing, I don't have a clue what God is up to. But I can trust Him because He does know what He's doing. And He's working in incredible ways to bring about an incredible, glorious end to all this. An end that will bring Him glory and will be for your good and my good. We have to believe that. That's what it means to live with eternity in view. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, I acknowledge that this is easier for me to say than it is to do. And God, I pray that you will help us to remember to keep you in the forefront of our minds, to live each day with eternity in our view, to never lose sight when things get hard, when, when, when the clouds come in and we can't see the sun. Help us to keep our eyes of faith on you. When we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because we look to you. Lord, when, when the, the, the sun is shining brightly and all seems well, Help us not to lose sight 
who you are. Grant us, Lord, this ability to live with eternity in view. Thank you, Father, for this day, for this opportunity to gather together. And we commit ourselves into your hands. And now to him who is able to do exceeding abundant beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church in Christ Jesus through all generations forevermore.